Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Good morning. My name is Brenda Coffey, and I will be reading uh, from the Christian Standard Bible, John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge, a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them for those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that there is nothing wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brenda, thank you so much. When, when I asked Brenda, she told me about how nervous she gets being in front of people, and I would say you probably can't even tell she was nervous. So thank you, Brenda, for reading that. If you didn't open your Bibles yet, go ahead and get them open to John chapter 6. If you came today without a Bible, uh, there's one in the seat back right in front of you or underneath you. If you don't own a Bible, don't leave today without one. We believe God's Word is able to transform lives, so make sure you leave today with one. We have plenty of free ones for you. Uh, just a real quick note, uh, how many women are leaving to go on the retreat this weekend? Raise your hand and shout hallelujah. hallelujah. Yeah, they're getting ready to go. So uh, uh, this is the women's retreat. We had our men's advance. We don't retreat, we advance men, right? Uh, earlier this week, uh, month or earlier this year in August, uh, now our women are going to go retreat because they have to retreat from us, right? Um, <laughs> So we're praying blessing over you ladies as you go and that the Lord would meet you in a powerful way while you're there. Uh, real quick, I, I think one of the things that I need to do this morning is to uh, 
bring back what we've been talking about a few, in the past few weeks because it sets up the context for the story of what happens today in our, in our passage in John 6. So let me review for just a few minutes what happened in John 5. If you can remember, Jesus healed the guy. Uh, the Jews got mad at him because he was doing something on the Sabbath and breaking the law. And then Jesus made some statements that made the Jewish leaders just absolutely hate him because he was saying things that made himself equal to God. Right? So Jesus' words were interpreted by people who hated him to, to mean that Jesus is equal to the Father. Jesus is equal to God. Now, instead of defending that or like correcting it, he doubles down and he clarifies in John 5 exactly what that means. He says three main claims. I imitate the Father, I give life, and I make judgment. And then right after that, he calls six witnesses, key witnesses to the stand, and they testify to the fact that Jesus really is who he says he is. Jesus really is equal to the Father. And those six key witnesses are available in the latter part of the book of John. If you missed any of those sermons, they are available online on our website, waynesboroughfm.com, under the sermons tab. Make sure you go check those out because they're really helpful, I think, in setting it up for today. Because the conclusion that we have to come away with at the end of all of that, at the minimum, is that Jesus is claiming that he is God. We can't ignore that. And so if we can agree and receive what Jesus has said, then we also agree that Jesus really does have the power to give life, and he really does have the authority to make judgment. You talked about the sheep and the goats that Joseph was referring to earlier in Matthew. Jesus does have authority to make judgment. So we believe as Christians that Jesus has infinite power and authority. Jesus with the Father, has infinite power and authority. Now with that, can you just like ask yourself the question, like with infinite power and authority, what does Jesus do with that? What, is, what does he do? Well, let me ask this, what would you do if you had infinite power and authority, I'm not talking like Thanos, right? Where you just have to work really hard. Like what if you just had it, right? You had infinite power and authority. What would you do with it? Some of you might say things like what? World peace, right? Others might decide to say solve world hunger. Great, right? But let's just be honest with ourselves. If, if you had infinite power and authority, like wouldn't you at least try to like fly? <laughs> or, or, or maybe like go invisible for a few minutes and like just walk around and, and see how that goes for you. Do something like the superhero powers have, like what they do, right? Like wouldn't you at least try that? I, mean, I know I would if I had infinite power and authority. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be invisible, I'd be flying, I'd be doing all sorts of stuff, right? One of the things I did come to a conclusion, though, is that no matter how much power and authority I may have, or, or if, if, if I had infinite power and authority, I'd never be able to make the Washington Commanders or the Panthers a winning team. <laughs> I'm just being, I, I joined in there. I'm a Panthers fan, and we're just terrible, right? We've never been good. So no matter how much authority or power, it just doesn't work. The question I ask, though, is, is, is important because I, I still think that in our day and age, power and authority, is we're still skeptical of it. And we've been taught to be. Uh, we've had experiences within and without the church 
that cause us to be skeptical of anyone who's in a position of power or authority, right? Some have abused the powers and authorities given to them, have they not? We've seen that in government. We've seen that in society. They use their power and authority for selfish means and gain. So I would say that now more than ever, we as people living in 2022 in America are absolutely skeptical of power and authority. And, 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 and I would even venture to say that within the church, we're still the same way. We, we have had occurrences within the body of Christ that make us skeptical of people in Christian positions of power and authority, of Christians who have far-reaching influence and they abuse their position for really twisted or selfish gains, whether it's acts of adultery, sexual morality, greed, pride. Like heartbreakingly, the concepts of power and authority have been abused and they taught us to not trust it. So much so that there's certain groups of people, I wouldn't say in the church per se, some maybe, yeah, but would argue that nobody should have power and authority. Nobody should be in that kind of position. Now the problem is we say, well, somebody ruined it, therefore it's bad. Somebody abuses it, therefore it's wrong. Oh, but you don't know my Jesus. The one who truly has infinite power and authority. Have you noticed what he does with his infinite power and authority? What does he do with his if you were to look at the signs that he does in the Gospel of John and the miracles that are recorded throughout the other Gospels, you would see that with his infinite power and authority, he shows incredible mercy. He has the ability, and yet his, his works of power and authority revolve around gentle, corrective, compassionate mercy. His compassion for the people who are in incredible need. Like if you, if you track the signs, think about it. One of the first ones that we came across in the Gospel of John that we've been going through. John 2, Jesus turns water into wine. One of the reasons was to keep the groom from being embarrassed. That's an act of compassion. We also see it in, in healing the royal official's mortally ill son. He heals the sick. We saw it in in the healing of the paralyzed man by the pool in John chapter 5. We see him healing that which is broken in that man. In John 11, we're going to even get so far as he heals Lazarus and raises him from the dead. So, So we see Jesus using and leveraging his authority and power and the infinitude of it with acts of mercy. He finds the deepest needs in the broken world that fell apart when humanity rebelled against God in Genesis 3. And he goes in and he reworks and redeems and restores. You see, when he does these acts of mercy, he's not diminished, like he's not reduced, he's not famished by it. 
he seems to let his ministry be primarily defined by these acts of mercy. I would say that I think that's one of the more difficult things for Christians to wrap their heads around or even to imitate. Because Jesus going into the more broken parts of people's lives means that we have to follow him there. And if we're going to follow him there, then we have to know first that we're going to be uncomfortable while we're there. And two, things might get a little messy because we're dealing with human beings. Carbon-based units, they're a bit messy. There's a phrase that I'll often hear people say when dealing with certain kinds of people who have a certain significant brokenness in their lives and they're trying to minister to them and they say, oh, that person's a EGR, which means extra grace required. And we laugh about it. But we're each individually people who have extra grace requirement needs. And yet Jesus is here in his miracles, in his signs, dealing incredibly mercifully with places of brokenness in people's lives. No matter how deep or how wide the need. And today's sign in John 6, that we're just now getting to after 25 weeks. <laughs> Sorry. Turtle mentality. Slow and steady wins the race. Today's sign is going to give us a taste, not just simply of the depth of Jesus' mercy, but the breadth of it, just how wide it can go. I'm titling this message this morning, The Potluck of a Lifetime. And church people, you know what a potluck is like. And yet we're going to find out that we haven't even tasted and seen just how incredible a potluck with Jesus really is. Here's the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men. I'm going to clarify that in a little bit. I will say that this miracle is considered one of the greatest miracles primarily because of not only how many people it impacted, but primarily because it's recorded in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only miracle that Jesus did that's recorded in all four Gospels. So there's this importance that's placed on this by all the authors and not only that, but we make this story super significant because we teach it to our kids. It's one of the key stories that's popular with children, right? You hear about it all the time. You probably know it when you grew up with it. And here's the danger with that. You're too used to it. The danger is you hear this story. Oh, I know this story. Move on. I know it, right? The problem is <laughs> we really don't because there's an incredible importance placed on it, and I want to try to drudge the depths of this to bring them out. Now, one of the things I also really want to clarify about this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is that, is that the point of the miracle is not that Jesus made enough bread for everyone to eat. Like, if that's what we leave celebrating, whoa, he made enough bread for everyone, great, everybody got their fill, we missed the whole point. 
Bread turns into the buzzword for all of chapter six. It's the main thing that gets talked about after the next miracle we see right after this one. And, 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 and bread becomes the buzzword because Jesus is making a point about himself in this miracle. The point of this miracle, the point of feeding 5,000 men with bread, ultimately is that Jesus himself is the bread of life. That's one of the things that he says. We start getting into his I am statements, and he says, I am the bread of life. So, so here's the problem. We didn't read that far ahead. So the main point of this story, the main point of this account, I can't give to you yet. It's that Jesus is the bread of life. So we're going to get there in a few weeks. But for now, we're going to just look at the act itself, look at the miracle, and glean from it what we can. So if, if you want to break down some of your notes as to maybe how we're going to outline the text, uh, it comes into three parts. Verses one through nine will be supply and demand. Verses uh, 10 through 13 will be the bread and the fish. And then verses 14 through 15 will be the prophet and king. But then after that, you have to make sure you put in parentheses who wouldn't be king. Prophet and king, parentheses, who wouldn't be king, all right? So that's how we're going to outline the text if you want to think about it. And from each section, we're going to see the Lord teach us three main truths, three main truths. The first one is simply this, little or no faith, Jesus can do the impossible. Secondly, the, the truth we're going to learn today is that Jesus' mercy is quite lavish and endless, and then thirdly, we're going to learn today that Jesus is no means to our own ends. So let me try to set the stage for us. I mean, I'm not going to exactly go through verse 133, verse by verse, but we're going to see uh, that after what happened in John 5, in John 6, Jesus takes his disciples, they go across the Sea of Galilee, and they just can't seem to get alone. There's this crowd, this huge crowd that keeps following him, right? They, so it's like they're sitting there and they're going to this mountainside and there's the crowd showing up. Here they come. Oh boy, right? Why were they there? Why was the crowd following Jesus? Scripture tells us it's not because they were trying to be obedient to Jesus. Verse 2 tells us that they were there because of what? The miracles, the signs, they were entertained. Guys, this is a key theme throughout the Gospel of John that we've seen several times, is that there's a kind of people who's entertained by Jesus enough that keeps them interested, but they have no allegiance to him. And so this theme keeps coming up throughout this Gospel, and here it is again, people who are following Jesus because they're entertained by the signs, because of the miracles, because of the benefits, per se. So they're there, and there's another contextual point that I think is incredibly helpful for this time. Look at verse 4. Now the Passover, circle the word Passover in your Bibles if you would. A Jewish festival was near. The Passover was near. Guys, I, 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 we need to talk about the history of the Passover because this whole story is absolutely correlated to the events in the Passover. So let me try to bring up that history a little bit. 
uh, about the Passover. If you can remember back in the book of Exodus, we have the people of Israel are enslaved to Egypt, right? And Egypt is tyrannical. They're, they're, they're abusing the Israelites and using them for their own gains. And God's plan was for Israel to be set free. You remember the, the phrase, let my people go, right? So that was God's plan. And God sends Moses to set Israel free from Egypt. And And a series of 10 plagues comes about because Pharaoh just wouldn't soften his heart and respond to Yahweh. Moses is God and Israel's God. And and he keeps hardening his heart. So nine plagues come and then the 10th one comes. And it's the the, the death of the firstborn son. You think that would do it, right? Well, on this night, God gave instruction for the Israelites to take the blood of a Passover lamb a pure spotless lamb to take its blood and paint it on the doorpost and the lintel of their home. And the angel of death, when it came in to take the firstborn sons, would see the blood and pass over the house so that no one in that house would die. Everyone would be saved. Now, we find out that that judgment, that plague, softens Pharaoh's heart enough to let the people go. And so they go and they get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's chasing them. God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground, closes up the sea on Pharaoh's army, and Israel truly is set free from slavery. An incredible story, an incredible history. But it doesn't stop there. At that point, they start wandering the wilderness. They get their covenant from God. And about two months in after that, their food supplies start to go nil. They start running out, and they start grumbling. Oh, it would have been better if we had died in Egypt. What? (laughs) Anyways, Moses graciously goes before God, pleads with God, and God starts to send what? Manna. Bread from heaven. It's like a dew on the ground. Each morning it would wake up, and there would be a layer of this manna. Do you know what manna in Hebrew means? What is it? They weren't sure what it was. It literally means, what is this stuff? Okay, well, we're going to collect enough for the day, and then we'll have food. They ate that for 40 years. 40 years, they had manna in the morning and quail in the evening. Enough for each new day. Totally dependent on God for their provision. So, so they ate for 40 years this manna until they entered into the promised land. So that's the history of the Passover. And here's why it's so important that John mentions it for this miracle. Here's why. This story was the national identity of all the Jews. This was an incredible history. Imagine if we as Americans had that kind of history. We'd be like, yeah, that's us, right? So, so in one sense, like this is the time where political excitement is at its peak. Like, oh, let's go Israel. Oh, yeah, this is us, right? So it's like, it's like our Independence Day. Right? We've got July 4th where we celebrate our de- independence. Yeah, forget Europe, right? We, we, we have our hot dogs and hamburgers. They have their lamb and their matzah, right? So if you were to be in Jerusalem around Passover time, you'd most likely be seeing some dudes riding around on donkeys, shirtless with the Jewish flag painted on them, shouting, Israel, right? You might see the local parade go through the streets of Jerusalem with the, uh, the Jerusalem high school's um, mascot and then their homecoming queen and king walking down through the, the streets, right? 
and they're on a chariot pulled by two horsepower? Now, maybe not that. Like, that might be transposing some of our customs back on them. But it was a big deal. This was exciting time, right? Passover, it's here. Again, our national identity. Woo-hoo! So we have people who are excited about all of this, who are remembering the Passover, heading probably into Jerusalem to celebrate it. And this is where we get to the supply and the demand. The supply and the demand. So like the other gospels kind of add in some of the details that John left out as well. So Jesus sees the crowd and Mark 6, Mark 6 says he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and so he began to teach them. Now you better be grateful that you are not under the person's of Jesus' teaching this day because apparently he taught all day. Apparently you'd be sitting there all morning, all midday, all evening, and you would be hearing him teach. Now, I'm just kidding. I would love to have been there. Don't get me wrong. But the day grew late, and people started getting hungry, according to the other Gospels. And you see the need get introduced, the need that this miracle addresses, hunger. Hunger. Out of, out of all the miracles that Jesus has done, out of all the needs that Jesus has miraculously met and filled, this one is a growling belly. What? This isn't a deep need. This isn't necessarily an oppressive need per se. It's just hunger. It's like one of the most basic needs, if anything, and yet here he is, mercifully aware of what's in their bellies. I mean, it's incredible the range of miracles that Jesus does. Raising a de dead man from death into life, healing a, a paralyzed man, and feeding people. <laughs> feeding people, getting at their hunger. Now, with this, Jesus sees the need, and, and it says in, in, um, in verse 5, so when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked, who? Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Now, there's two reasons why he asked Philip. First, Philip was from this region. He might know the local shops, right? He might know what's there locally to provide such amounts of bread. But actually, the real intention is in verse 6. He asked this to test Philip. He asked this to test Philip's faith. Now, when we think of testing, we often view it negatively because who wants to be tested, right? I don't want to go to school and have a test. That's terrible. That's annoying. I don't like that. But this isn't about uh, whether or not it's going to fail. Testing of our faith is designed to see what in faith we are able to entertain. The heights of which we expect from God. Testing of Philip's faith. What is Philip capable of believing that Jesus can do? That's kind of the test here. Now, uh, I'd like to think that, and you might like to agree with this, that if we were there, if we were Philip, we would have been like, ah, Jesus, this ain't a thing. 
right? You remember Passover, right? We're about to celebrate that. You fed the nation of Israel for 40 years. You, you can handle this. This ain't nothing. Just speak the word, right? You would have think that we would have been so godly. But here's Philip. Does he respond that way? No, he starts thinking like Scott Brud thinks. All the logistics. He starts calculating. Okay, so there's no Panera Bread. That hasn't been invented yet. Uh, can't get there. Bojangles? Nope, can't go there and get their biscuits. They're not here yet either. Uh, what about the local catering service? Do they have anything? No, catering hasn't been invented yet. Um, they just keeps calculating and thinking of the logistics. I just got to mention catering for 15 or 10,000 or 5,000. We'll, we'll get to the number eventually. That's a nightmare. Like, like, that's an incredible nightmare to think about as a caterer. So the supply just isn't available. Jesus spoke the demand. Where's the supply for it? Now, one of the things I do want to clarify, though, is is we we see that that Jesus or that John mentions that there's 5,000 men here, right? The, the, The numbers were often counted by the men, but scholars and commentators would just say, yeah, probably double that, maybe triple it, if you want the accurate number of women and children that were with them too. So maybe about 12 to 15,000 people were in this crowd. That's a conservative estimate, I'd say. But my goodness, who cooks for 12,000 people? Who does that? Guys, we had a, you know, our life group, uh, uh, the, the life group that I'm a part of, uh, this past Tuesday, we were um, responsible for prepping a meal for our partner ministry called Love, Inc. They have a big Tuesday night event, and uh, our life group, we signed up, yeah, we'll do it, why not? We find out there's 100 people, all right? Find out there's 100 people, what did we sign up for? My goodness, we were like, we were, it was ironic that this is the text that was on my mind and heart as we were getting ready to prep a meal for 100 people. I was like, Lord, multiply the food, right? And here's what happened. We get there, we, we have our, our life group come together, they're serving, and they keep putting out the food and putting out the food, and it just seems to multiply, right? And, and everybody ate and had their fill, and we had a ton of leftovers. And we praise God for that. So it's not ironic, I think, that this is what this text is about, but that was 100 people. We were a little bit stressed. Imagine 15,000 people. Like, I think you're understanding that the demand here is impossible. It is just outrageously impossible to fill, and the supply just seems to be non-existent. Like, there's no way to fulfill this demand. So Philip's kind of just thinking logistically, and he comes to the conclusion, man, like 200 denarii wouldn't even be enough to, to give these people a bite. Now, 200 denarii, uh, a denarii, a single denarii is a day's wage back in that day. So imagine 200 days of work and then saying, all right, I'm going to give all that so someone can have a single bite to eat some bread. He says, not even that mon- amount of money, eight months of wages is going to be enough. For anyone to even have, for everyone to have a little, a little bite. So, so, so if we're like Philip, we need to be rightly at least concluding, yeah, this is impossible. This ain't going to happen. This is just, it's just not going to go. It's not going to go well. Like the demand is so vast and in Philip's heart, the supply just wasn't there. Now, at this point, other gospels, uh, 
record that Jesus sends the disciples out into the crowd just to see what's there, to see and bring back any kind of food that they might find. So that explains maybe why Andrew comes back with this boy. He comes back with this little boy, and he says, hey, there's a boy here who has five loaves of bread and two fish, but what are they for so many? But what are they? So, so Andrew finds a Lunchable, And in the Lunchable, it's got f- five, five loaves, right? And we're not talking like these loaves that you get. We're talking little biscuits, maybe, or pancake-sized loaves of barley bread. The cheapest kind of bread, the most annoying kind of bread. Small, flat pancake. And that Lunchable, on a side, has two anchovies. So at that time, that's appropriate for a little boy to kind of snack on and eat throughout the day so he can get home with a full belly or at least having his hunger tided. But Andrew brings this boy with this Lunchable to Jesus. And I want to pause here. I think it's important that we get this. Um, I, uh, my family, we have a, a series of little kids' books about Bible stories, and, and there's one about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Let me tell you the way that it constructed this story in its retelling of it. It starts off with the little boy at home, joyfully packing his lunch. Oh, there's five loaves of biscuits of bread. There's two anchovies. Let me, let me put these in there. And he's and he just walking with the strap and he goes up and he sees Jesus in this crowd. Oh, he joins in and he follows and he hears the teaching and then the disciples come up and they're saying, Jesus is asking for your bread. Okay. And he goes and he gives it to Jesus and Jesus feeds the 5,000. And the last page of the book, the disciples are holding the little boy up and they're celebrating the little boy. After this, where'd he go in the story? He's not there. He showed, he's mentioned once, right? Like, like, is the moral of Jesus feeding the 5,000, be the little boy and give all that you have to Jesus? Is that the point of this miracle? Please just shake your head with me. No, no. The point of this miracle is not to moralize the little boy. Don't celebrate him. All we know, he was just fed up and annoyed that the disciples were asking him for it and they just kind of beat him up and said, give it anyway, right? Like, we don't know. But, 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 but don't moralize the little boy thinking that this miracle is about the little boy. Now, now don't, don't get me wrong, right? Like, this is a beautiful picture of what it looks like when, when we take the little that we have and offer it to Jesus and look what he can do, right? So, so don't get me wrong, there's that beauty, but, but there's other scriptures that make that the point and this illustrates that well. But the point of this story is Jesus, he's the bread of life, and we'll get there in a little bit. I spit everywhere, I'm sorry. I guess I'm thinking about bread and Bojangles biscuits. Guys, don't moralize the boy. Look at, look, at, look, at, look at Jesus here, right? The point of this section of the parable or of this miracle is about faith. 
It's about the testing of faith. Because here, the point is that Philip's faith is tested. And the point is that Andrew's faith kind of starts and then fails. Like, like, like the, the point of this is, it's impossible. Like, it can't happen. I mean, did you notice how Andrew's faith couldn't even make it to the end of his sentence? Look, there's, there's, there's five loaves of bread and two fish. Ah, but what are these for so many people? Failing faith, doubting faith. Can't you relate? Guys, the circumstances here, the demand was just impossible. The supply is nowhere to be found. Like in this circumstances, the disciples are sitting there wondering, like, there's no way. Like there's nothing we can do. We can't see the way forward. We're not, even, we're not even able to process through how this can be solved. Oh, but they were forgetting all about Jesus. And yet here they are in their doubting faith, in their failing faith. And does that stop Jesus? Absolutely not. Does failed or doubting faith put restraints on what Jesus can do in our lives? Absolutely not. Guys, the crowd ate their fill and they consumed all they wanted and that was regardless of whether or not Jesus' disciples believed he could do it. So like here's one major truth that I think we wanna start off with. That is blurry. Let's look over here. Little or no faith Jesus can still do the impossible. Can you read that with me? One, two, three. Little or no faith, Jesus can still do the impossible. Like, isn't that the greatest news? Like, isn't that incredible? Like, like your highest thoughts, the, the, the highest requests that you can ever make to God, don't give God a multiple choice. He's like, oh, that's all you're entertaining? Oh, well, I want to do this, but that's all you asked for, so I got to do that. Okay. It's not a multiple choice for God. God can go way above and beyond your highest expectations of him or your lowest. He can do something entirely different than what your faith is entertaining. So, like, if you can't see the way forward, you're in circumstances right now and you're like, man, this just seems impossible. The demand is high. The supply just isn't even there. Jesus can still do the impossible. Still do things that you can't even dream of regardless of how strong or weak your faith is. Thank the Lord that he's not contingent upon my faith. So that's why you and I ought to pray in faith And then say, but not my will, your will be done. There's so many people who have a negative view on ending your prayers that way. Oh, but what if if your will isn't done? What if you don't get what you want? It's like, wait, 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 isn't God's will better anyways? Like, I want what he wants. Like, why wouldn't I say your will be done? Like, we as Christians, we get to have the kind of faith that can anticipate the impossible breakthrough and yet also has the patience to wait on God. We can expect the impossible and patiently wait at the same time. That's the kind of faith that we get to have in our God.
Because regardless of our faith, Jesus can still do the impossible. And look at what it says in verse 6, that Jesus, he tested Philip's faith. Why? Because he already knew what he was going to do. He already had a plan. He already had it in place. He wasn't waiting for one of his disciples to give him the idea. Well, why don't you just take some bread and fish and feed everybody with it? He had already had the plan. Which gets us to part two of the bread and the fish. So we get to verse 10, right? And Jesus is like, sit down. Come on, sit down. And the 5,000, 15,000 people do the wave as they just sit, right? And they come down and, and it's like a nice picnic area. You notice how there's just a lot of grass there? Oh, that's a beautiful picnic, right? And Jesus takes the loaves from this little boy, the five loaves and the two fish, and it says that he gives thanks. He gives thanks in verse 11. If Jesus were using the common form of the Jewish thanksgiving that was given right before consuming a meal, it went something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. (laughs) Notice how he doesn't bless the food, he blesses God. And you ever wonder why we pray before we eat? Boom! There it is, right? We give thanks to God because every crumb that falls into our mouth is a gift from heaven. So he thanks God. And actually in the Greek, just a side note, the words give thanks is actually the Greek word eucharisto, which we get eucharist from, which is what means to give thanks, but we often refer to that as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. So he gives thanks and then he starts distributing the bread and then he distributes the fish. He keeps multiplying, creating out of something much more. And the food starts to make its way through all the crowds and they start to eat the, the barley loaves and the fish and they start munching. And then, and then when they come back for seconds, Jesus gives it. Verse 11, look at what it says. They ate how much? As their fill. When they were full, they ate as much as they wanted. Like they're just down on the biscuits and anchovies, right? And they keep eating until they were full, right? You notice how there's nothing stingy about Jesus here? He's like, oh, you already had your first and your second. Slow down, man. You might gain some weight on this, right? Like, slow down. Don't eat too much. When, when the kids come up and they ask Jesus, please, sir, I want some more. Does he go, more? No, he says, have your fill. I have plenty to give. Then look at verse 12 and 13. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Do you notice that John seems to be stressing just how lavish the food supply is? Guys, the 200 denarii of eight months of wages would have only poked their hunger. Here, they eat all they want and they have their fill. They have all that they want. And not only that, there's plenty left over. Some people look at the 12 baskets and see the 12 tribes of Israel, which means God's mercy isn't just enough for all the people. It's also enough for the Israelites as well. 
But I can't help but notice just how lavish and endless the supply of Jesus' mercy is. That's the second key point for this second part, that Jesus' mercy is lavish and endless. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Jesus' mercy is lavish and endless. Guys, you and I, I think you might be able to experience this. When we are dealing with people in need, we have such an ability to be depleted. We have such an ability to be drained by their needs. Guys, the reality is that the more drained we feel after dealing with people in need, the less we feel we can give. And, and I would actually argue that that's not true. If you're able to give out of a, a source of grace, a source of mercy that's connected to the Father, then you have an endless supply. And in giving the, to the need and helping those in need, you're not diminished at all. The only reason why you would be diminished is if you're giving out of a selfishness. Because you are limited. But here we see Christ, that he's just, he's not diminished in any way as he gives to the need. Like his supply of mercy is connected with the supply of bread. And when he gives it, it massively outpaces the need that has arisen. So we don't have a stingy savior. We don't have a stingy God. We have a generous, loving God who is also, we find out, a prophet and a king. Who wouldn't be king? That's our third part. The third part we get to in verses 14 through 15 is the prophet and king who wouldn't be king. So, so the, the crowd, we see their response in this part of the story. They saw the lunchable and they see Jesus keep multiplying it out of nothing, out of thin air, out of his mercy. And it keeps going through the whole crowd. Everyone eats, comes back for a second, has their fill. And they start imagining. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. If you can remember the Passover, remember what we started with, that history there. This is what's on the forefront. The Passover's on their minds right now. And remember, for 40 years in the wilderness, they ate bread. They ate the manna that was given to them from heaven by Moses. So they assumed it was Moses. And here they are, again, in the wilderness, in the countryside, this massive crowd of Jews, and they're eating bread. And immediately they start recalling Moses. They start making their associations to what Moses had said. They remembered 40 years of eating manna while wandering in the wilderness. And then the second generation comes along. They're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses, he gets up and he speaks to the people of Israel to remind them of the law in Deuteronomy. And this is what he says to the people of Israel. Look up on the screen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see his great figure, great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, 
They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. And I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. The prophet Moses writing about Jesus. And here we see that the Israelites are saying, wait, 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 wait. This, this is the guy. This, this is who Moses told us about. This is the guy, the prophet that, Mo, that Moses wrote about. And they're absolutely right. They nail it. Yeah, Jesus is the coming prophet. In fact, he's even better than Moses. Jesus even later says that I am the better bread of life. You thought you had manna in the wilderness. I am the better bread of life. But, but, but remember, all of Israel's collected and shared identity from years of history is now Forcing to, is being forced to be shifted from Moses to Jesus. No longer should their history be about Moses and Egypt, but about Jesus. No longer should they be celebrating Moses' delivery from Egypt and into the promised land. They should be celebrating Jesus who would deliver the world from slavery to sin and death and lead them into God's presence forevermore. But is that what they're thinking? Is that the connection that they're making to this? Is their own slavery to sin and death the dominant problem on their minds that they think this new prophet here is here to fix? No. No, they don't see that like we do now. What did they see? Well, think about it. They think, okay, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. Moses also led us out of Israel or out of Egypt as a people and set us free from slavery to Egypt. Here's Jesus right now feeding us bread in the wilderness. Wouldn't he be able to set us free from Roman tyranny? You think he would be able to do that? You got to remember at this time, Jerusalem was occupied by the Roman Empire. So they weren't a freed people. They were a captive people. And they were taxed by the Roman Empire and they were ruled by the Roman Empire. So here they think, huh, well, Moses, if, if Moses did that to, to Israel back with Egypt, this Jesus guy, I think he could be useful for that. I think, I think we, could, we could set him up as our king. Yeah, if he feeds us bread in the wilderness like Moses did, he could set us free from the Roman, the Roman Empire like Moses did, right? So what do they do? Look at the end of our passage, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's clarify one thing, and the answer is yes. Is Jesus king? Let me try that again. Church, is Jesus king? Yes. Absolutely he is. What's crazy is out of the Old Testament, there's three main figureheads, prophet, priest, and king, and Jesus is all of them in one. Prophet, priest, and king, and here Jesus is our king, and yet he flees their attempts to come and say, hey, come be our king. We need you. Why? I mean, couldn't have Satan shown up, hey, Jesus, like, isn't this like the quick way to the throne? They're wanting you to be their king. Just go ahead. Like, you can avoid the cross. You don't have to go there. You don't have to be beaten. Man, just get up on the throne. They want you there. No. 
You see, these people thought Jesus could be useful for their own ends. And they wanted him to be their king, to accomplish their ends. The crowd wanted to force Jesus to define his mission and to work politically. And here we find that Jesus will not be used that way. No, he didn't come to set the political nation of Israel free from Roman tyranny. He came to save the world. He came so that we might have life and have it to the full. So like, we don't get to redefine Jesus' mission that the Father gave him when he sent his Son. We, we don't get to twist Jesus to be used for our own schemes and our own purposes, which is why the last point that we're going to wrap up with today is that Jesus is no means to our own ends. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Jesus is no means to our own ends. Guys, he's not a pawn on your checkerboard or your chessboard. He's, he's not a tool in the toolbox that you can bring out every now and then when you want him to do something for you. He's not that kind of king. Jesus comes to no man on that man's terms. You approach him on his. So guys, there's like so many ways that, that we as a church, the church I'll say, can like take Jesus by force and push him into context that weren't his primary concerns. We can do it in the church. We can exploit Jesus and manipulate him. We can make him the poster boy for our latest ventures in the church. It, 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 we can do it politically, like just like they did here. Politically, we can, we can baptize our political efforts into the name of Jesus and say these were what Jesus was primarily concerned about. Like for example, you can say that Jesus, his primary concern was social justice. I'm not talking about socialism. I'm talking about social justice. Here's what I'm talking about. So I was reading a commentator who talked about a time when he was flying home from a conference with a theology professor from the University of Chicago. And that professor was telling him about how deeply involved he was in the National Councils of Churches and the World Council of Churches. And over the two hours of their plane flight, uh, the, 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 the theology professor explained how they built these relationships, these ecumenical relationships on a consensus by eliminating political divides or political, uh, potentially divisive doctrines in their uh, statements. So in the end, when these councils got done with all of their ecumenicalism, all that was left was there was no gospel in it. There was no Jesus in it. They actually struck out a lot of the words of Jesus and their primary concern was social justice, dealing with needs in the world. They had no undergirding commitment to the unique Christian theology that we hold to. So Jesus' name remained on the flag of those councils, but his words were just strictly edited out. Baptize Jesus and push him into areas that we think he's primarily concerned about. We do this as well even on the other side of the aisle, right? We, we make Jesus' primary concerns to be to fight against things like socialism and to say that, oh, Jesus primarily is concerned about a free capital market. Like, like I'm not trying to get too political here, but, 
but the, like you don't get to use Jesus for your own political or any other ends. Like you get to receive his ends. Because here we see that Jesus' priority is to simply be the bread of life that gives life to the whole world. He's not to just simply be an easy means to accomplish and justify our own ends. You might know this phrase well from a certain movie. Jesus may not be the king you want, but he's absolutely the king that you need. So with that, we had these three sections and we came away from these passages with three main truths. That little or no faith, Jesus can do the impossible. Amen? Secondly, we saw that Jesus' mercy is quite lavish and endless. Amen? And then thirdly, we see that Jesus is no means to our own ends. We simply receive his. Amen? Amen. So with that, this is setting us up to receive Jesus as the bread of life in the rest of this chapter in the Gospel of John. But for right now, if you would just bow your heads, I think there needs to be some encouragement. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes, because I, I am deeply aware that there are many in here where you are currently in circumstances where things ahead just seem absolutely impossible. And the highest that your faith can entertain is just the impossibility. Would you be willing to have your faith encouraged this morning? Because regardless of what you can entertain, God has an incredible, beautiful plan for your life. He already knows what he's doing with you. So don't lose hope. Don't lose heart, take heart. Your high or low faith, no matter what, Jesus can still do the impossible. Or maybe for those of you who are wondering whether or not Jesus just simply isn't concerned with being merciful to you anymore because you've hit those circumstances. The reality is no matter how deep or wide your needs, no matter how vast, Jesus' mercy runs deeper and wider. His concern with your needs is more than your own concern with your needs. He's deeply paying attention to you. Will you receive that today? And still others of you may have come here today still thinking that Jesus is to be a cheerleader for your life, to make you feel better about your own brokenness, when in reality, he's not your king. Jesus is not to be a means to your own ends. Jesus is the means and the end. Would you be willing to make him your king today? Willing to receive him on his terms, to make his priorities yours? Because then and only then will you actually receive the bread of life. He's not just a a magician who can entertain He's not that at all, actually. He is the Son of God sent to the world to save you from your brokenness and deal mercifully with all your failures. 
If you're here today and you desire to make Jesus your king, not in the way that this crowd did, but in a way that received Jesus as your king with his rule and reign and his priorities, would you just raise your hand real quick? Okay. Praise God. You can put your hands down. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the decisions that were made from the seeds cast today. I know that there were many seeds that were cast and and the only way that any of them can bear fruit in people's lives is if you give the growth, if you are watering, if you are tending to them. So I pray, Jesus, that we would uh, hear your word today. I believe you have spoken your word. You have spoken truth to us. And I pray, God, that you would make us a new people, that you would would make us people who, who know how to point others to where the bread is. God, we know that along this way, we're just beggars who have found the bread, and we want people to come and taste and see just how good, Jesus, you really are. So I pray, God, that more people would follow suit in making your son their king, that they would receive Jesus as he is, not twist him into the ways that they want him to be, and that we would follow you all the days of our lives, and that at the end of the day, we would dwell in your house together forever. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.